1: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: President Reagan never missed an opportunity to turn a weakness into a strength. Reporters focused on his health and on his battles with the House of Representatives led by Speaker O'Neill. When a reporter asked about his health, he decided to kill two birds with one stone. The president said, I'm getting plenty of exercise. For instance, Today I ran three circles around Tip O'Neill. They laughed, they cried, it was better than, yes, at least for the first year or two. President Reagan dominated Washington politics and mostly got his way. Now, his rhetorical skill, his experience as a broadcaster, and the size of his defeat of incumbent President Jimmy Carter, all of that helped. But Reagan's 1980 victory brought in senators of his own party, enough to take back the Senate for the GOP. This cannot be understated. It was 1954 when they last held the Senate. Now it's 1980. Reagan brings them back. More than that, some very big names went down in defeat in 1980. Birchby of Indiana, Frank Church of Idaho, George McGovern. Democrats controlled the House, but the president controlled the agenda. Tip O'Neill talked about getting harassed at airports. This is before the Twitter and Facebook and feedback if you could get that way, I suppose. Had to start taking a private plane. When a constituent asked him what he was doing in Washington, Tip O'Neill said, I'm getting the blank kicked out of me. And if the speaker felt this way, you can imagine how House members felt. So when the president wanted a reduction of tax rates, Democrats tried to offer an alternative the president's plan passed in the House. The fact that House members knew there was a waiting Republican Senate to pass anything the president wanted, or virtually anything the president wanted in 1981 at least, put the entire onus on the House to oppose it. When the president wanted MX missiles, which he said was essential for combating the Soviet Union, but many Democrats in-house, even a few Republicans didn't want For environmental reasons, for the idea of disarmament, the Republican Senate passed the MX bill. It's hard to fight the president, Senator Lawton Childs of Florida said at the time. When Reagan wanted to sell AWACS, aircraft warning and control systems, these fighters could detect oncoming enemy aircraft. When he wanted to sell them to Saudi Arabia, that was not a popular idea on Capitol Hill. It was not popular with Israel. Menachem Begin made a trip to Washington and made a special speech to Congress and a television speech. Reagan had to fight a bit, had to call in 44 senators for one on ones, but in the end, he got what he wanted. In a later private meeting among staff, the old sportscaster in him coming out, it was the fourth quarter, gold to go, and you pushed it in. Doesn't it feel good? What must feel good for the few presidents in history is to be in the situation that President Reagan was in. Now, it's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation in American politics would be that very rare one of all two houses of the legislative body controlled by your party when you're in the White House. That's pretty rare. But if that's not going to happen, the next best thing is that if the other party controls the House, your party controls the Senate. This is the situation President Reagan was in, this is the situation President Obama is in. And it's not all that common in history. Before Reagan, you have to go back to Herbert Hoover, 1930 to 1933 when he had this situation. He kind of bopped it up, but we'll get into that. William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, those presidents had it. Benjamin Harrison, Chet Arthur, Rutherford B. Hayes, U.S. Grant, James Buchanan, Franklin Pierce, James Polk, and why President Washington? Most of these presidents, though, had it just for two years. Reagan had it for six. President Obama's already had it for four. So very rare political situation. We'll discuss it a bit. Washington, we mentioned, was one of those presidents, and he might have been very glad that the Constitutional Convention that he chaired created the upper body, the Senate. And yes, when the Capitol was in New York and Philadelphia, for the first 12 years of the nation, the Senate actually sat above the House. And probably even today, most senators view things that way. Before there was a constitutional convention, the Virginia Plan, crafted by James Madison and others, was presented to George Washington to see if he would support it and then start a convention. That Virginia Plan, which they hoped would be approved immediately by the convention, it wasn't, but a lot of parts of it were. One of those parts that Madison proposed was to have an upper house, the Senate, to definitely have two bodies. Madison called it a necessary fence against the political passions of the day. Later on in his political career, James Madison, as a leader of the House of Representatives, would oppose George Washington and his administration on certain issues, and would face the necessary fence of the Senate himself. Republicans, or you might say anti-administration party congressmen, were elected in the 1794 midterms. Didn't all happen on one day at that time. It happened at different times. But generally centering around 1794. Washington still controlled the Senate after those elections. Now, to be clear, Washington didn't have a party. But historians go back and call it either the, you know, Federalists, but not all of them identified themselves as Federalists who might have supported Washington. So a clearer term is pro-administration or anti-administration. It was known who his friends were in the Senate and the House. Washington at one point felt it prudent to make a treaty with Great Britain. He sent his good friend, the Supreme Court Justice John Jay, over to Great Britain to make a treaty. Now, it wasn't a very popular treaty, this Jay Treaty, and there effigies of Jay burning up and down the eastern seaboard. Why was this? Most of the Republicans or anti-administration party wanted to treat with France and not England. After all, the people of France had supported us. and the position of the Washington administration, we should now be neutral. Great Britain was a much larger trading party, a, a much bigger force in the economy, and a bigger threat to the new nation. There were still British troops lining on the western frontier, and there are still all kinds of claims back and forth that needed to be settled. The Jay Treaty didn't solve all these problems, but it did get the British troops off the western border. And that was a popular idea with many and enough for Washington to support the treaty. He took it to his friendly Senate and the Senate approved it. President Obama's party lost 52 seats in the 2010 midterms. Big loss. But the shock did not extend enough to the Senate chamber to turn it. When Benjamin Harrison was president, he suffered a similar problem. It was a Midterm disaster in 1890. His party held the Senate. Democrats took the House, arguing against the McKinley Tariff, which had raised prices on certain household items. Won a lot of seats, won control of the House. They didn't take the Senate. So the Senate could block any attempt of the newly elected Democrats to institute tariff reduction. When the public started to see the Mexico expedition as just inflaming the slavery issue, that this new territory we might get from Mexico would be used to create new slave states. President Polk's party now lost the House because Northern Whigs were beating Northern Democrats on this issue. They still had a Democratic Senate. and That was very helpful when it came time to supply the army and when it came time to treat for peace. Some of the Whig party were no-territory Whigs. Even if they were Southerners and supported slavery, some of them just wanted no territory added to the Union at all. They wanted to come away from the Mexican War with nothing, just let Mexico be. Because he had a Democratic Senate, he was able to conclude a treaty with Mexico that involved new land. So the Senate treats, we talked about that, the Senate also approves appointments that the president makes, and in a drastic situation, is the body that can impeach federal officers, including the president himself. Now, to balance all of this a little, the Constitutional Convention did give powers to the House, too. Well, for one, the House has the exclusive power of originating bills that involve taxes. Both bodies can originate any other type of bill that they want as long as it's approved by both houses. The other power the House has is it can actually vote for the president which if there is no majority in the Electoral College. And that hasn't happened very often, twice in American history. The Senate tends to be more of a defensive shield for a president in office. I compare it to the Rook on a chessboard. You're allowed to do it once during the game of chess, and you can essentially swap positions with King and Rook. It's not exactly a swap because you, you move the Rook two pieces over, and then you move the King to the point that the Rook crossed. But it does protect the King. Senate could be considered in the same vein. The president is in absolute control here, so remarked progressive Senator Hiram Johnson about the 1917 Senate. President Wilson's anemic victory in 1916 had no coattails, and it wasn't enough to carry even the states that he had won four years before. In the opening of 1917, he didn't control the House anymore. But his party, the Democrats, did keep the Senate. They lost seats, but they kept the Senate. As a result, during World War I, the president was able to block any attempt to make an oversight commission about the war, that would have any real teeth this was something that bedeviled lincoln during the civil war in a similar fashion ulysses s grant popular president 1868 he's elected 1872 re-elected oh a couple scandals develop and there's a bad economy and in 1874 the democratic party for the first time since the civil war takes the house including many former confederates they would kick up a storm there they would pass resolutions start investigations, some of which would uncover more scandals in the Grant's administration, which would cause him problems later. But they couldn't enact serious legislation because Grant's Republicans still held the Senate. There's a simple reason for this phenomenon that rarely occurs. Senators are up for election every six years, and only one-third of the Senate is up at any time. Thus, for an event voters might be angry about if it's You're talking about the events of 2010 and the economy and Obamacare or what have you. You're talking about 1874 and scandal in the uh, Freemans Bureau and corruption in the Congress, the Credit Mobilier scandal, bad economy. It takes three full years of voter anger to replace the entire Senate over anything they were excited about. That's all part of the plan. From the very start of the Constitutional Convention with the first suggestion by Richard Spate, of North Carolina, that senators should be in office for a term of seven years. The convention never really looked back. This was to be a body that would have more staying power than the representatives. Nobody suggested otherwise. Well, Nathaniel Gorman of Massachusetts was one to suggest that senators have a four-year term. That's still more than House members, double what House members wanted. And he suggested we should rotate when senatorial members are up for election. Four-year terms, that means one election every year one-fourth of the Senate up every year. The convention didn't like the four-year term idea, but they liked Gorman's idea about the rotation. Hugh Williamson, also of North Carolina, delegate, said that six years is better than seven if we're going to do this rotation. Senators thought James Wilson, Pennsylvania delegate, would be making internal decisions, decisions about the economy, taxes, trade, etc. They'd also be making external ones, foreign policy decisions. You need some time and maturity to do that. He proposed a nine-year term. The convention agreed on six. As it was originally conceived in the convention, senators were not elected by the people, but by the state legislatures. Now, this wouldn't completely take them out of politics, but it would insulate them somewhat. First of all, the decision is going to be made by a legislature who also is going to be up for election at a given time, and national issues did creep in to some of these races. But you can see with the timing, if it's something that's a hot issue now, you've got to wait for the legislature to turn one way or the other, and then for them to vote for a senator. So the senator is insulated a bit from the vicissitudes of national politics, though sometimes they were not insulated at all from state politics, but that's another story. One that leads us to the passage of the 17th Amendment, where senators were directly elected with the first elections being 1918. I know of only one president having this advantage. One party in the House, his in the Senate, wanted to cast it away, and that's Herbert Hoover in 1930. Democrats, after a midterm and a series of by-elections occurring during the Great Depression, when Hoover was not very popular, the Great Depression was raging, and despite his pronouncements in the radio that everything was okay, American voters sought to punish the GOP party. His party, though, did not lose the Senate. Hoover suggested to Republican leaders that they allow Democrats to take over the Senate anyway. They allow them to control the Senate. Why? Well, because then he could blame them. They would be responsible for the national emergency. Now, this is something that was as laughable then as it would be today. And it also points out that there is a degree of independence, of course, between a president and the president's party in the Senate, because those senators, particularly a fellow James Watson who would become the Senate leader, had no interest in giving up
1: such an advantage. They controlled the Senate. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: President Obama won't give up this advantage voluntarily, but he could be in danger of losing it. Six-year midterms are rough on the president's party almost every time. 35 Senate seats are up for election in 2014. 21 of them are Democrats. Seven of the Democrats are running in Romney states, states where Romney carried. Many of these senators won in 2008 riding on the Obama-Biden coattail. It's six years later now. There's no president on the ballot. Pretty dark stuff if you're sitting in the White House. I can take it a step further and look historically. Let's look at second term or six-year midterms. Wilson, 1918, FDR, 1938, Eisenhower, 1958, Reagan, 1986, Clinton, 1998, and George W. Bush in 2006. Bad news. Those elections since the 17th Amendment was passed and there was a direct election of senators, you got six six six-year midterms, five out of six times the president's party loses seats in the Senate. Cheering crowds, balloons, the music of the Marine Band as Air Force One landed in Las Vegas. And President Reagan spoke on behalf of candidate Santini. My name will never appear on the ballot again, but if you'd like to vote for me one more time, you can do so by voting for Jim Santini. And then it wasn't part of the speech, but he had to throw it in and win one for the Gipper. Vroom! And off, Air Force One went to Costa Mesa, California, for candidate Ed Chow. And there he made a very poetic speech. Your grandchildren may ask you about a day when a former sports announcer named Dutch Reagan came to town for his last campaign. He went on. I hope you'll tell them that it's not true. What did he mean? Senior moment? Huh? crowd must have been puzzled. It's not true. There really are no last campaigns. Each generation must renew and win again for itself the precious gift of liberty. In all, Reagan traveled 24,000 miles making these kind of speeches in 1986, leaving the White House to try to hold on to the Senate he had earned in 1980. 54 appearances in 22 states, raising and this meant something in 1986, $33 million for these Senate candidates. The weekend before the election, the president was exhausted. He rested in his Santa Barbara ranch. Mitch Daniels, who has now been an Indiana governor at the, t- at the time, was the head of the White House 1986 senatorial campaign effort. He was not immune to this history we're discussing today. Presidents he knew couldn't easily transfer popularity to senators. Franklin Roosevelt had tried it in 38. Eisenhower, in 58. But Daniels hoped that where more conservative Democratic voters that had voted for Reagan in 84, where they were leaning between the two sides, he hoped the president would be the tiebreaker. And in 86, it wasn't. Santini lost. Ed Chow lost. Six senators that Reagan had carried in 1980 now went down in defeat. Some of the senators now actually performed better than they had been of performing in the polls because of Reagan's appearances, but control of the Senate was lost nonetheless. I almost don't have to describe to you the effects of the Reagan administration of losing that Senate. Almost immediately, the new Senate that took over began investigating the Iran-Contra situation and turned down his Supreme Court nominee, Robert Bork. A president's party in the Senate shouldn't be seen as blindly following them. In fact, it's the least body to do that. Senators are very powerful. Individual senators can hold up legislation by denying unanimous consent. So most of the Senate's business, it's not controversial, just moves forward with the consent of all 100 senators. But if a senator decides to cause trouble, sometimes because they're upset about something else, they'll just hold up unanimous consent. And so sometimes you'll need 60 votes in order to pass anything in the Senate. Well, senators can go to the minority leader or majority leader and put an anonymous hold on legislation. So, no one will know. I mean, sometimes reporters figure out who it is, but no one will know who blocked it. I talked about how Wilson's Senate helped him during the run up to World War I. He certainly had troubles with individual Democratic senators. I talked about Herbert Hoover. He had his trouble with some of the progressives, Bora, Norris. The Senate helped President Reagan a lot, but he also had some quibbles with them many times during reagan's first terms republicans were pushing for additional spending that uh, his budget director david stockman didn't want so let's get a little more scientific i've looked at all of the house and senate midterms not just the 60-year midterms all of them since the amendment is passed and people started voting for senators directly i'll put up on the facebook site join the my history can beat up your politics facebook site or look for it there I'm going to put up the data that I have there, but I'll explain it to you as best I can. Here's what you see. House elections and Senate elections occur on the same day. But how are the results since 1918 going all the way to 2010? Well, House midterm elections resemble midterm Senate election results, but they do not completely imitate them. They are not identical twins, but cousins. So in 2010, for instance, President Obama's Democratic Party loses 15% of the House. They lose in the Senate as well, but only 7% of the Senate, which is, of course, seven senators, 100 senators. etc. When Reagan's GOP loses 6% of the House in 1982, Reagan's party actually picks up a senator. That was the same thing that happened in 1962. Kennedy's Democrats, post-Cuban missile crisis, They lose 4% of the House, which everyone saw as a victory because they're expected to lose more. But in the Senate elections, the same day, same year, they gain three senators. This happened with Richard Nixon, too, in 1970, anger over the Vietnam War. He loses 3% of the House in 1970, but he picks up two GOP senators. Of course, this isn't the most common thing, but it does occur. Now, you have a couple of elections, 1950, 1978, 1942, 2006, midterms. Where the loss in the House and the loss in the Senate is exactly the same percentage-wise. But that's not the norm either. There are two different types of elections. One is statewide, the senator. The other, a small district. Senators sometimes have a reputation. They've been in office a long time in many cases. That enables them to rise above the day-to-day partisan feelings. Okay, but let's not overstate it. Generally, if a president is having a bad day on a midterm, they're having a bad day in both houses. 1994, 2006, 2010, 1938, 1966, 1958. These are what you would call headache elections. President's party suffering bad defeats. And in all those cases, there were losses in both of the houses. Didn't always result in a loss of control, but loss of seats. I don't want to overload you with numbers, but I'm going to throw some numbers at you because we have the data. So one half of the time, there is less than a 5% variance between the House election and the Senate election. In other words, how many seats the President's party lost in the House versus the Senate, variance of less than 5%. The average of all the elections is 4%. So don't get carried away saying these are two completely different elections. That's not true. They do resemble each other averages are a nice way of looking at these things. We said the average was 4% variance between the Senate and the House. So if you want to try to predict what's going to happen with the Senate elections in 2014, I'm not exactly doing that, but I'm going to give you a tool to do it on your own if you wish, you got to consider what might happen in the House elections. So let's look at it this way. If President Obama in 2014 has a terrible midterm and loses, say, 10% of the House, say, 44 seats, I think everybody would consider that bad. Well, you can basically say, you know, Bruce Carlson told me in that podcast that that means there should only be a 4% variance. So if he lost 10% of the House, he's going to lose 6 to 14 senators in that same midterm. But if he has a kind of pinprick kind of six-year midterm and loses, say, just 10 House seats, just 2% of the House, then you can go back and say, well, I remember that podcast and Bruce Carlson told me that President Obama's Democrats could range from gaining two senators in an election like that, a pinprick election, to losing six senators of his own party, 4% variance. Yes, it's averages, but you know the 4% lines up pretty well. Not that many outliers. So again, here I am recording this cast in 2013. I'm sure it will be repeated in the 2014 cycle, of course. But I'm recording now in 2013 this, and I would have no way of predicting what type of midterm it's going to be. There's so many factors. It's usually bad for a president in six years, but sometimes not. It wasn't so bad in 1998. The best that I can tell you is the senatorial election will follow that House election in a zigzag fashion. Does the king lose his rook? That's what we'll be watching in 2014. Is there anything additional to say about this phenomenon? Well, one comment I would make. Losing the Senate in the sixth year of a presidency doesn't appear to be so good. In the case of Reagan, he lost both the House and the Senate in 86, and his party took the White House in 1988. He was able to pass the torch to George H.W. Bush. I do think that the tail end of the Reagan administration had the counterbalancing effect of a sweeping series of what most Americans would consider foreign policy victories in that Gorbachev came to control the Soviet Union, wanted to deal with Reagan. Reagan successfully dealt with him and set us on a course to ending the Cold War. I can't say that those last two years, particularly 87, were very good for the White House. So you have the same situation in 1918. Wilson's party, you know, after having the Senate for two years as a defensive shield, loses it. And obviously, miserable years in 1919 and 1920 for the Wilson White House. And with that background, I think we'll conclude and just watch the events as they unfold next year. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, as a reference. We do have a Facebook site, a Facebook group. Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, search for it on Facebook. There's a link to it on my website. I'm also on Twitter, at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Follow me there. Favorite us on Stitcher, very important. And I say this every time, but it is so important. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. That's the, that will help me out immensely. Um, and thanks for listening. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day?